Welcome to the Shotguns and Sugar podcast, where we take a deeper look at topics you don't learn about in school. I'm Dr. Bukloski, and I enjoy exploring different parts of history. If you have ever had a chance to visit Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania's Phipps Conservatory, when you're done, take a little side trip. When you exit the conservatory parking lot, turn on to Shenley Drive. When you get to the east side of the park, continue straight on to Forbes Avenue. Stay on Forbes until you get to South Braddock Road. Turn right on South Braddock and stay on it until you get to where South Braddock, Kenmore, and Hawkins Village all meet. Kenmore is easy to miss. It's a little road that splits off from South Braddock to the right. Just past the split, there's a light. So if you miss the split, you can turn right at the light and go over to Kenmore. Follow Kenmore through the residential district. You will cross 3rd Street, Rankin Avenue, and Cary Furnace Road. That is a large road with a light. Just after you pass under the Rankin Bridge, you'll come to the intersection of Kenmore and Ridge Street. Continue straight through the intersection onto Braddock Avenue. This Braddock Avenue is different from the South Braddock Avenue you were on. As you are traveling along Braddock Avenue, you will go through an old, old commercial district that is slowly being gentrified. Just past the post office, there's a little park on your right. There's not much parking, so be careful, but park and take a walk through the park. There are two or three historical markers for you to read, one of which honors the Edgar Thompson Steelworks. The mill is behind the fence on the south side of the park. The Thompson Steelworks play an important role in an American Industrial Revolution that started in the late 1800s. Though the era is said to have stopped with the advent of World War I, it began a century and a half of innovation in business and industry that continues to be the hallmark of America's economic growth. Certainly, the big well-known industrialists of the era that I will talk about, like Ford, Armour, and Carnegie, demonstrate America's skill in developing production and marketing techniques to maximize the work of earlier innovators. But there were also lots of other innovators who made significant contributions to the era. I'm including the stories of Andrew Jackson Beard and Lydia Newman as representative of and to honor these lesser-known contributors to American productivity, many of whom succeeded despite the societal restrictions of the Jim Crow era. It's unusual that a mill would be named for a person instead of a place. In the late 1800s, it was more common that mills were named after the town they were in. For example, the infamous Homestead Mill was in Homestead, Pennsylvania. The Bethlehem Works was in Bethlehem, Pennsylvania, and the Wyandotte Steel Works were in Wyandotte, Michigan. If this format were followed, the Thompson Works would be the Braddock Works, because it is in the town of Braddock, Pennsylvania. There were a few, like the Janie Furnace in Ohatchee, Alabama, that were named after their founder or some other person associated with the mill. But Thompson was never involved in the iron or steel industry, at least not directly. So why would its name be given to the most technologically advanced steel mill of its day here in the United States? The answer to that question lies in the history of the Pennsylvania Railroad. The PRR, as it was called, was established by an act of the Pennsylvania legislature in 1846. It replaced a series of short-line railroads and canals that were built in the late 1820s to compete with the Erie Canal. J. Edgar Thompson was hired as the new railroad system's chief engineer. In 1852, the same year the system connected Pittsburgh and Philadelphia, a group of board members elected Thompson as the company's new president, a position he would hold until his death in 1874. 
Thompson was an innovator. During the 1860s, he experimented with replacing iron rails with steel ones, but shipping them in from England was cost prohibitive, so he dropped the idea until the American mills could produce steel as high in quality as those from Europe. He was also the first to distribute the managerial burden by dividing the company into semi-independent divisions. He appointed Thomas A. Scott as the chief engineer for the West District, based in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. In its early years, the railroad used a private company, the Atlantic and Ohio Telegraph Company, to communicate with its stations and operational facilities along the line. When Scott went to the telegraph office, he often noticed a bright, efficient, hard-working operator. His supervisor had nicknamed him the Scottish Devil because of his Scottish heritage and imaginative ideas that he often put into practice without consulting his superiors. Nobody complained because in every instance they improved the company's operations. His aggressiveness made him the highest-paid operator in the company. The boy's last name was Carnegie. Although only 18, his work ethic and initiative so impressed Scott that he asked him to become his assistant. The move came with a considerable pay raise, from $25 to $35 per month. Although lacking in formal education, Carnegie was a hard worker, a great observer, a quick learner, and a problem solver. Early one morning, when he'd been with the company for just a year or two, notices came in about an accident on the main line that had snarled traffic across the entire system. Using his knowledge of the network, and remembering how Scott had responded to similar situations, Carnegie sent out a series of telegraphs using his boss's signature, without Scott's permission, to reroute trains, so that by the time Scott arrived in the office, the entire system was unsnarled and back on schedule. Not long after the incident, Thompson paid a visit to the Pittsburgh district, and when he was introduced to the assertive clerk, he remarked, so this is Scott's Andy. The three men, Scott, Thompson, and Carnegie, thought a lot alike and became friends. In 1856, just two and a half years into his job with the PRR, Scott offered his clerk an opportunity to invest in a logistics company that frequently used the railroad. Andy said he would love to, but he didn't have the money because he was supporting his mother and younger siblings. So Scott offered to loan him the funds for six months. Andy took him up on it, but six months later, he was no better off financially. So he and his mother took out a $400 mortgage on the house to pay back the loan. He paid back the mortgage with his first dividend check, $1,200. Throughout the next few years, Andy, Scott, and Thompson shared in several investments. By the time he had been with the railroad for a decade, Carnegie was one of the wealthiest men in Pittsburgh, but not because of the railroad. His yearly salary as district manager was only $2,200 a year. That would equate to about $75,000 today. But he was making $45,000 a year from his investments. In 2021, that would be about $1.5 million each year. Recognizing his path to greater wealth lay not in the management of a railroad, but in expanding his investment portfolio. In early 1856, Scott's Andy Andrew Carnegie, for those of you who didn't already figure it out, turned down a position as assistant general superintendent of the PRR and a path to a vice presidency to strike out on his own as a capitalist. One of his first adventures as an independent investor was the result of a squabble between two childhood friends. They had convinced him to invest in a steel mill, something that Andrew knew nothing about. After just a few months, his two friends began arguing about various and sundry decisions at the mill, and Carnegie took sides, offering to buy out the third leg of the threesome. The offer was rejected, and, to take revenge, Carnegie and the other friend built their own mill, right down the street from their former partners. The day the new mill opened, a support beam collapsed, killing a steel worker and injuring several others. 
An investigation concluded that the construction specifications were not followed, making the mill a total loss. In an effort to protect their investment, Carnegie and his partner approached their former friend about a merger. They would join their useless mill to his operating one. The friend agreed. When the merger was finalized, Carnegie had turned what would have otherwise been a $100,000 loss into a $20,000 profit. But the strain of the negotiations had worn Carnegie out emotionally and psychologically. He needed a vacation. So he took a few of his friends, not, as I recall, the two related to the mill deal, to Europe for three months. During his vacation, he met Sir Henry Bessemer. About 16 years earlier, Bessemer noticed that when cold air was blown through molten iron, the impurities in the iron oxidized, leaving a high-quality steel. Over the next several years, he transformed that observation into a new way to make steel, receiving a British patent for his perfected system in 1856. Still smarting from the steel mill debacle, Carnegie wanted to learn more about his technique. By the time they were done talking, Carnegie was a convert to the Bessemer process. When he returned to America, he convinced several other investors to come in with him on the construction of a new mill. Although it was not the first Bessemer-style mill in America, it was the largest and most technologically advanced. While looking for customers, Carnegie remembered the innovative president of the PRR. He knew that the company was purchasing steel rails from new Bessemer-style mills in the United States, but there were many, many more miles of track to convert. If he could convince his old friend to buy rails from the new Carnegie Works, it might be instantly profitable. And what better way to convince someone to buy into a product than to play on their vanity? Hence the name of Andrew Carnegie's first steel mill the J. Edgar Thompson Steelworks. It is still operating, although it has changed hands several times since Carnegie retired. That little park I told you about is an exhibit that includes the first steel ingot created at the mill in 1875. His ploy to convince Thompson to buy his steel did not work. Thompson died six months before the mill was finished. After his death, the PRR Board of Directors awarded contracts based on personal friendship rather than money, and none of them knew Carnegie personally. Although the relationship warmed over time, the first year of Carnegie's steel venture, the PRR ordered a mere 2,000 tons of rails. The success of the Thompson Works brought advanced steelmaking in the United States to a whole new level and made Andrew Carnegie a household name. But it also illustrates the way that America's contribution to the Second Industrial Revolution was the way we were able to take others' ideas refine them, and create more efficient processes and marketing techniques. Even our inventions were, for the most part, centered on increasing productivity. Andrew Jackson Beard's invention of the Jenny Coupler is a great example of this type of contribution. Born into slavery, Beard was emancipated towards the end of the Civil War and settled down to a farmer's life. In 1872, he took a three-week trip to Montgomery, Alabama, selling apples. The trip showed him the benefits of managing a business overworking the land, so he sold his farm and built a flour mill near Birmingham, Alabama. The millwork gave him some free time, which he used to experiment on ways to improve farming practices. During the 1880s, he filed patents for improved plows that he sold for close to $10,000. That's about $270,000 in today's money. His reputation for mechanical improvements brought him an offer of employment with the Alabama and Chattanooga Railroad. While working for them, he saw friends and co-workers injured as they manually dropped pins into couplers that connected train cars together. His interest peaked. He set about developing a way to join the cars together safely. 
His invention, known as a Jenny Coupler, made him $50,000. That's about $1.5 million now. It also saved countless lives and injuries. Although other versions of automated couplers were in use in the 1890s, a modern version of Beard's coupler survives in the systems used in most American trains today. Another great example of this kind of contribution was in the field of agriculture and manufacturing. One of the most important men in this arena, so far as contributions to the Industrial Revolution go, was Philip Armour. In 1856, Armour returned home with a small fortune from the California gold fields. While in California, he demonstrated his business acumen opening and managing a sluice construction business for miners. He returned home to settle down with his dearly beloved, only to find that she had married another while he was gone. He was relieved. California had taught him she wasn't what he really wanted in a lifelong companion. With no reason to stay in Massachusetts, he moved to Minneapolis to help migrants involved in the Westward Home Movement. In Minneapolis, Armour used his $8,000 fortune to set up a grocery wholesale business. A year or two later, in 1859, he expanded into the meatpacking industry when he formed a partnership with Frederick Miles to sell jars of pickled meat to the immigrants. But the partnership was stormy, so in 1863, he sold his interest to Miles and joined John Plankinton in an existing meat processing business. The partnership between Plankinton and Armour was well balanced, with Plankinton handling the meat processing plant and Armour the marketing. Partly because of this division of labor, the partnership lasted some 20 years. It took them just a few years to max out the Minneapolis market, so they expanded with new slaughterhouses in Chicago. Armour moved to Chicago to oversee the new operations. As the company grew, Armour also improved productivity with innovations like the refrigerated railroad car, creating an international marketing network, and continuing to refine the disassembly line until it was said he used every part of the pig except the squeal. When building their meat processing facilities in Chicago, both Armour and his largest competitor, Gustavus Swift, used a design that Cincinnati slaughterhouses had developed in the late 1840s. Their meat packing plants incorporated a system where a hog, once killed, was hung by its rear legs and was pulled along a trolley system from station to station. The butcher assigned to each station removed a different cut of meat. At the end of the line, what was left, the offal, was hauled out into the prairie and buried. The so-called disassembly line improved the productivity of the butchering process. It did so well that without changing it much, Armour and his competition grew wealthy, filling the Union Army meat requirements for the rest of the war. As the meatpacking business grew, enterprising businessmen created satellite industries using slaughterhouse offal to manufacture stuff like glue, tallow, and lard. Armour recognized that bringing their processes under his umbrella could increase his bottom line substantially. His first foray into the use of offal was packaging and selling lard. Cooks and housewives melted the semi-soft white pig fat and used it as a cooking oil until the advent of vegetable shortening in the early 1900s. In the 1890s, his lard operation expanded into the production of margarine. Early margarine was a combination of beef fat and cottonseed oil, so it fit well with Armour's interest in both meat packing and grain sales. In 1882, he began to experiment with agricultural fertilizers using the blood, which until then was allowed to drain into the watershed and scrap meat left on the butchering floor. These experiments led to the creation of the Armour Fertilizer Works in 1893. In 1884, he bought out one of the satellite companies, the Wall Brothers, and began to render bones into glue. 
A year later, he entered the pharmaceutical market when he began selling a medicine for treating indigestion derived from the pepsin found in a pig's stomach lining. The next year, in 1886, he opened a soap-making operation. Other operations included button-making from bones, combs from horns, wigs from tail hair, plaster from body hair, and felt from wool. Indeed, it was said of both Armour and Swift that they used everything but the squeal in their meat processing operations. In his autobiography, Henry Ford noted that these hog disassembly lines provided the inspiration for his assembly line that he used to build the Model T. Although Ford did not invent the assembly line, as many report, he did develop one that moved continuously. A single line worker had only so many seconds to perform his assigned task before the line moved out of his reach. The disassembly line made both Armour and Swift household names, but both men recognized the real money lied in expanding their market beyond the local community. To do that, they had to find a way to ship raw, unprocessed meat hundreds of miles while keeping it fresh. Initially, Armour solved the problem by opening slaughterhouses, branch offices, if you will, in larger cities throughout the Midwest, including both St. Louis and Cincinnati. But to become really profitable, they had to find a way to ship their product nationwide or even worldwide. This could easily be done with refrigerated railroad cars. The problem was how to do it. Both Armour and Swift worked on the problem for months and both came up with workable designs about the same time, only to see the railroad companies reject them. They told Swift that if they adopted refrigerated cars, they would lose their business hauling live animals to smaller towns for local butchers, an important segment of their business. But they told Armour that they did not have the staff necessary to maintain the temperature in his cars. Both companies addressed the challenges the same way. They built their own cars and hired the railroads to haul them. Armour put a man on each car to do what needed to be done to keep the meat cold and in its saleable condition, efforts that really meant they had to restock the ice at every train stop. The invention of refrigerated rail cars also benefited many other industries than the meatpacking business. It permitted the growth of the fruit and vegetable market, increasing access to a balanced diet because people anywhere in the country could taste fresh-grown strawberries and have a tossed salad out of season. It also opened doors to new marketing opportunities. In another first for the meatpacking industry, Armour opened commission-based sales offices in New York, London, and other cities. The Industrial Revolution also saw significant changes in retail operations. Retailing in the mid-1800s was dominated by dry goods and, in larger towns, grocery stores like Plankinton's in Milwaukee. But the westward home movement created more rural, isolated farm families who were more difficult to serve. In the late 1860s, Aaron Montgomery Ward accepted a position as a traveling salesman for the wholesale house of Willis, Gregg, and Company. As he traveled throughout the Midwest talking to dry goods store owners, he constantly heard complaints about the poor quality of the goods and the high prices the local store owners had to charge for them. During a sales trip, he conceived of the idea of a mail-order business selling only high-quality products and delivering them to the nearest train depot for the customer to pick up. By selling direct to the customer, he removed the layers of wholesaling involved in getting the product to the local store owner. This savings could then be passed on to the customer and still permit the company to operate profitably. In 1872, he distributed his first catalog. It was no more than a price list of 163 products on a single 8.5 by 11 sheet of paper. 
Later that year, after his partners had abandoned him, the Illinois Grange named Ward as its purchasing agent. This connection simplified his marketing and the business began to grow. By 1875, he was experiencing annual sales of $300,000. In 1889, the company was doing $1.8 million in annual sales. In today's economy, that's about $51 million a year. Not bad for an industry startup. His first serious competition started in the late 1880s, when Richard Sears and Alva C. Roebuck started their mail-order watch business. In the early 1890s, they expanded their selection into a general merchandise mail-order operation that competed directly with Montgomery Ward. When the panic of 1893 hit, the undercapitalized Sears Roebuck & Company had a hard time paying their suppliers. Julius Rosenwald, a partner in one of Sears' suppliers, visited the struggling partnership to see how he could keep his largest customer in business and ended up as Sears' new general manager. Around 1900, Sears and Rosenwald, by this time Roebuck had retired, saw the need to expand and in 1904 they began planning a 40-acre campus. Rosenwald hired a system engineer, to use a modern term, named Otto During to design the new facility's production system. As Stephanie Deutsch described it, During broke orders down into their components and assigned each a specific number and time for each item to be retrieved from the warehouse. Gathering each item required a complex system of conveyor belts, chutes, and baskets that brought everything to the packaging department for shipping at the same time. By dividing the work into its component parts and assigning different workers to each part, the worker would need less training and, due to repetition, would become more efficient. Seven years later, Henry Ford used the same process to develop his revered assembly line for the Model T. When the costs for the new facility exceeded expectation, Sears and Rosenwald listened to their banker and, instead of taking out a loan to complete the complex, took the company public. It was Henry Goldman's second IPO of a merchandising company. The IPO instantly moved the two owners into the ranks of the wealthy industrial barons like J.P. Morgan, Andrew Carnegie, Andrew W. Mellon, and John D. Rockefeller. Although she is better known for her political activities as a suffragette, Lydia Newman made an important contribution to the hairdressing industry. She was the child of an African-American couple living in Ohio, but at a very young age, she was sent to New York because her parents thought she would have more opportunities there. In 1897, she filed a patent for a redesigned hairbrush, specifically designed for beauticians working with African Americans. It used synthetic bristles, a first for the hair care industry. The bristles were adjustable. They could be moved further apart, making the brush easier to use in thicker African American hair. They could also be detached and reattached quickly, making them easier to clean. And it had a removable compartment that would catch dandruff and dirt as it moved through the hair. Quite an accomplishment for a 13-year-old. Her efforts simplified the work of hairdressers, increasing their productivity and quality of their work. The work of these men and women illustrates not only the improved productivity that American capitalists and others contributed to the Industrial Revolution, they showed the way curiosity and independent thinking contributed to American society of the late 1800s. The idea that anyone from any walk of life can contribute to American economic progress. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Shotguns and Sugar podcast. If you'd like to learn more about this topic or access a list of resources used to create this podcast, check out our website, shotgunsandsugar.com.